0: Historical fiction is the melding of these two different things, the prior narrative that you acquire and then the created image that is yours. And the balancing of those two is always tricky, and I think that things are going to get out of balance along the way. And you are constantly readjusting that balance, and I think that can be discouraging. But I do think that the navigation of that balance is an essential part of the process, and it doesn't really stop. And so for me, it was helpful to give up on striking the perfect balance and to think of it as a process that will always involve a struggle. You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought.
1: From Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Rebecca King. And today, we're continuing our series on writing from history by discussing historical fiction with Marshall Klimaschewski, a senior writer in residence at Washington University in St. Louis, and author of the short story collection, Tyrants, and the novel, The Cottagers. We started our discussion by talking about what parameters historical fiction writers have when it comes to fact versus fiction.
0: I think that for many historical fiction writers or biographical fiction writers, there is a feeling that what can be known shouldn't be tampered with. And then there is always the sense that there's a great deal that isn't known and that that leaves a lot of holes and gaps and additional sort of room for you to find your fictional way into.
1: So it stands to reason that a historical fiction where the subject is fairly well-known and has a well-documented life like, say, Marie Antoinette, there may be less fictional freedom than with one of the French peasants who took part in the French Revolution. However, some authors have found a way to bend this kind of thinking
0: something like Yale Doctorow's 1975 novel, Ragtime, in which he is using these characters like J.P. Morgan and Henry Ford, Emma Goldman, as mythic figures to a certain extent, and they are all components of a certain American myth that he feels he can play with in a fast and loose, broad strokes kind of way. And I know that he is particularly interested in drawing some of those myth- figures into the same room so he has JP Morgan and Henry Ford encounter one another and wants to sort of see what happens when you put those two larger than life figures together.
1: David Foster Wallace gives a good example of how famous well-known characters and events can actually give a fiction writer more room to play.
0: David Foster Wallace has a story in his first collection called Linden that is about LBJ, but he does a number of things that the traditional approach of don't mess with what's already known would not prescribe. Even though he is writing the story in this way that has the feeling of being in the midst of real biographical documented fiction, he does this quiet thing of slowly having the facts be less and less factual, departing from the truth along the way more and more, and even introducing these sort of major anachronisms by the end of it. He has the AIDS epidemic that was clearly on his mind in the late 80s when he's writing the story, transposes it back into the late 60s, but in this way that's so sort of quiet and smooth and seductive that I have seen reviewers, initial reviewers, talk about that story without even mentioning that it's so far from anything that could in any way way be possible. And he has an author's note in which he is saying that all of the public figures who are in this book, including LBJ, represent the collective dreams, or they're sort, sort of meant to be attached to the collective dreams of these characters, rather than to the actual living people. And so I think that, again, fame gave him a certain liberty.
1: Aside from fame, historical fiction writers also have a certain amount of liberty with the documented life given that even first-hand sources, such as letters or diaries written by the subject, can only capture snippets of the entire, deeper-lived life.
0: I think for any historical fiction writer, there's the other thing you know that what you're receiving in terms of the lived life is this secondary, documented, condensed version of the actual lived life. You know, there are these two things you want to write your way into as a historical fiction writer. One is that prior narrative version of it, but then the other is the lived life that sort of lurks behind that. And we all have this sense, though, I think it's sometimes easy to forget, of the degree to which that lived life is so much larger and richer and more complex than any narrative version of it is going to be, whether it's the one that we get in the primary documents of letters and diaries and so on, or the secondary one that comes in histories and biographies, you know there's a big repository there that is available. No one actually has access to it, Uh, and so you have a certain freedom to go beyond what is documented into that larger open space before it.
1: In a way, historical fiction writers can even be thought of as translators.
0: Historical fiction can be thought of as kind of like a translation secondary sources, the historical version of the lived life that you are working with is the source text, and then your historical fiction becomes this translation of it. It seems to me that just like the translator, their primary responsibility is to have it be a good poem or a good story in the target language. That's the same is true, obviously, for the historical fiction writer. Ultimately, your responsibility is to the integrity of the novel or the story. And if you give that up for fidelity to the history, you're not going to be creating something that people are very interested in reading. There's that funny way, too, in which I guess you can almost think of it as like a retranslation. The secondary material is already itself a translation from the lived life. And in effect, a historical fiction writer is trying to get back to an original, but that's been lost. You're retranslating back to an original language from a source that you know is already a translation, which I think, again, gives one a sense of liberty.
1: Historical fiction writers can take this liberty with the lived life to an even more extreme. Alternate histories like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter or the steampunk genre break away from the factual history in amusing and interesting ways.
0: People will operate in that territory with different notions of fidelity, and their fidelity becomes something that pretty quickly you kind of have to throw out the window, right? You, You can decide certain notions that are going to be altered or certain known events and experiences that would get altered if this didn't happen. But then what would have happened to replace them immediately becomes as speculative as anything in science fiction. And so the more you start to build this alternate history, the more you recognize you're traveling further and further off the maps. But I think people are only interested in those books to the extent that they can have something interesting to say refracted reflection of what actually did happen and come back to the known history. As
1: Marshall pointed out at the start of the episode, the struggle between these two ideas, the fiction and the facts, liberty versus fidelity, are a continuous and precarious balancing act for historical fiction writers. But what other hurdles are there?
0: Besides the ordinary hurdles that are in any sort of fiction writing, I think one of them is that it's so much easier and more fun to research than to write historical fiction often. And the research inevitably leads you into interesting side routes And I have sometimes had the experience that, you know, the side route was the better story, and the original story that I was researching has to fall away, and I end up writing that story instead. But more often, I decide that I think this ought to be part of the story too, and that ought to be part of the story too, and i got to fit that and that's fantastic. And the answer is no. I'm I'm simply (laughs) avoiding the work I really need to be doing and collecting. So I think that's one of the risks, is always losing yourself in the research.
1: As a way to see some of these ideas in practice... How one can take the historical facts, such as they are, and make a story beyond them, Marshall talks about his own work, including two stories in his collection, Tyrants, and a novel in progress.
0: I'm working on a novel that began as an extension of the last story in my collection. It's about this Swede named Solomon August André, who in 1897 tried to drift to the North Pole in a hydrogen balloon. In the story, I kind of just remained within that space of the attempt on the pole and also sort of his love life, which was one of those little gaps that the historical fiction writer often likes because he was a confirmed bachelor and there was a lot of speculation about his love life, but there weren't any lovers evident. And at the same time, he's very romantic. He writes about ballooning and about love almost constantly in the same breath. And going aloft seems to have become From, or it seemed to me at least in reading some of his diaries and his letters and his work to have become a a kind of metaphor for being in love. And I feel like I sort of did that in the story, but there was another aspect to his story that I was really interested in, which has to do with what he imagined the North Pole was going to be, and with the kind of speculative geography of the late 19th century, including things like this notion of the open polar sea, the idea that when you got closer to the poles, things would actually start to warm up again, and you might very well find at the very pole itself a fairly temperate climate in which there could be an island which could well have a whole culture that we haven't sort of gotten to yet. And people had various reasons for believing that this could be true, but that combined with the degree to which people like Andre also thought that aeronautics was opening up a whole new world to us, and this world of, of invisible currents and systems that are kind of like waterways, except that we have never noticed them before, and they involve these sort of consistent air currents and weather patterns, and if you could harness that, you would sort of be getting access to this other world that is a mirror world of ours. And that's, that's sort of material that has led elsewhere, so it's become kind of a speculative novel, a sort of science fiction, that kind of writes its way out of history and into the imagined space.
1: Of course, this novel and its original story are a great example of the point Marshall made earlier about the potential dangers and seductive promise of research. He only first learned about Andre in the course of researching another early ballooner for a different story in his collection,
0: The one that I was first writing is set in the 1930s and involves this guy Nobile, an Italian who was piloting an airship to the Pole and he crashed and was lost for a time. He had had a radio on board and things like that, but they had lost communication for a time, and there was this major international search for him that involved planes and ships and all sorts of things, and in the midst of that search is when they actually first discovered Andre, this guy who had also crashed and been missing for 30 years, and people thought we would never know what happened to Andre, it was a sort of mystery. He had just floated away. I had never heard of Andre either, but when I had finished writing Writing that story, I remained interested in him. And at the time, he seemed like a sort of precursor to my nobile. Now I don't think he is. I think he's kind of his own thing. But that's what made me find my way over to him. And then there are these amazing photographs one of nobel's companions was an amateur photographer and brought his camera with him. And there are these beautiful photographs that were discovered among the remains and could be developed, you know, even though it was 30 years later, that involved these beautiful ghostly images of their kind of gorgeous balloon laying sideways on the ice and the three men sort of in front of it. I find it sort of ghostly in this way that's, that lends itself to fiction.
1: Many thanks to Marshall Klimaszewski for taking the time to meet with us, and thanks to you for tuning in. Join me next week as I talk to novelist Sarah Swenyan Bynum about her fabulous and historical novel *Madeline Is Sleeping*. As always, you can find *Hold That Thought* on SoundCloud, iTunes, PRX.org, and Stitcher. Have thoughts of your own after today's episode, or want to tell us about your favorite alternate history? Find us on Facebook or Twitter, and join the conversation.